Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. MPs vote to give the police more powers to crack down on protests in England and Wales as women across the country vow to raise their voices. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. He mentions the bill last night. That provided for longer maximum sentences for damaging a memorial than the sentences imposed in the three cases of rape I've I've referred the House to. All of those sentences less than 10 years. If, like me, you watched in furious disbelief this weekend as police arrested women at a vigil for Sarah Everard, the woman killed while walking home, then you might be surprised to hear that the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill, which gives police more powers to crack down on protests, passed its second reading in the House of Commons on Tuesday night. Labour MPs were swayed to vote against the proposed law after the events at the weekend, and many opposing the bill pointed out the irony of allowing for longer sentences for attacking statues than are handed down for attacking women. People have also raised eyebrows at the government's Integrated Defence Review, which was published yesterday. Previously, Britain was only prepared to launch nuclear weapons if faced with probable nuclear attack from another country. As of yesterday, Trident missiles could in theory now be prepared for cyber attacks, or those of so-called emerging technologies if they're deemed serious enough. The UK will also give itself the opportunity to stockpile an extra 120 nuclear weapons than previously promised. So what's behind the strongest show of nuclear force by the UK since the Cold War? While all of this is happening, it's easy to forget that the UK is still trying to navigate a fraught relationship with its EU neighbours. Later on, Anand Menon gives Peter Walker the latest news on the Brexit front. And a week after children return to schools in England, we look at how the government plans to tackle the learning loss experienced after a year of schooling interruptions. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, as the highly contentious government crime bill was voted through in the Commons on Tuesday night, and the right to reclaim the streets vigil is still on everyone's lips here in the UK, I'm joined by political correspondent for The Guardian, Aubrey Allegretti. Aubrey, it's lovely to have you on for the first time. Thank you very much. This is exciting. So we should start with the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Bill. Maybe it should be called the Anti-Protest Bill, in fact. It became an incredibly hot topic this week, didn't it, because of the scenes that we saw on Clapham Common at the weekend where there was some very heavy-handed policing. It, what, it, what is it that the Tories are trying to do with this bill? And I presume they wouldn't have expected it to attract nearly as much attention as it has. Yeah, I, I honestly think it couldn't have come at a worse time, really, for them off the back of the protests at the weekend and obviously the widely sort of criticised police handling of them. I think the government's always said that this bill was primarily sort of aimed at uh, stopping Extinction Rebellion protests being so disruptive. 
particular claims about things like ambulances being blocked from uh, taking patients to hospital by the protests and sort of police's inability to sort of move them on. And I think when I was chatting over the weekend to Steve Baker, he was talking about, you know, the fact that this was, you know, a, a way to sort of try and give people their freedom back because of the way that the protests had curtailed it, you know, for example, having to close their businesses because the roads were blocked and things like that. So that's the way I think that the Conservatives and the government who largely sort of see themselves as these great liberals see the bill as a way to sort of, you know, make sure that protests that are overly disruptive can be properly sort of contained by the police and give other people back their freedom from the protests, if that makes sense. Although, ironically, Aubrey, of course, what Labour have said is it would restrict other freedoms this bill, including the freedom to protest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like we said, coming off the back of the weekend, we realised just how significant that need to protest is. And that's why the optics of this are, are so bad for the government. And you've got the sort of the strange alliance of kind of charities and human rights organisations coming out uh, and being sort of vehemently critical of the bill. And also lots of Tory unhappiness, but they sort of see it as either sort of worth accepting or they weren't going to rebel against the bill in the second reading because they hope that the government will sort of tweak all of their concerns later on in the process before the bill actually gets passed and becomes law. And Labour, we think, were considering abstaining on this bill, weren't they? Doing exactly what you've just said, allowing it to pass at this stage in the hope that they could make some changes to it further down the road. They obviously toughened that line and decided to oppose it. But immediately the Tories jumped on that, didn't they? And said... Labour are soft on crime. It was a sort of very sort of retro argument, really, or populist argument in a way, between Tories saying bang them up and saying that Labour are soft on crime. And that was the trap Labour were trying to avoid falling into, wasn't it, when they were, were wanting to not oppose this bill in the first place? I was working over the weekend and I remember on the Sunday Labour coming out and putting out their statement that they would be opposing the bill, they would be voting against it rather than abstaining, which I think they had never sort of previously said on the record they were doing. But speaking to a a couple of sources that very clearly seemed to be the case. And I think they felt that they couldn't have sort of been seen to be bystanders, given the whole very highly charged debate about the Sarah Everett case and the protest that followed. They they felt the need to be seen to be more active in the in the debate and the about the bill itself. Do you think any of this cuts through to, to the public, Aubrey? We've got a whole bunch of elections coming up in May, haven't we? I think possibly. I think it will feel like quite familiar grounds to a lot of voters. So it's not necessarily something that I, I imagine may grab your person in the street who doesn't, you know, regularly or even sort of sometimes attend protests and things like that. But it reinforces the picture of what people will probably think of both parties for, which is, you know, Labour pro protests and sort of speaking truth to power and disruption and the government should think again and the Conservatives who are can sort of be back on more familiar law and order ground, and neither of them will probably be too unhappy about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and let's look at the integrated review that was published yesterday, big, big bit of homework for Boris Johnson, sort of setting out Britain's place in the world for the next 10 years almost, isn't it? And what, what, what he means by global Britain, sort of our post-Brexit sort of foreign policy approach. There were a few interesting aspects to it, weren't they? Weren't there not least the fact that we're giving ourselves the opportunity to increase our stockpile in nuclear warheads by 40% and are ready potentially to fight cybercrime with nuclear retaliation. Um, I wonder what Joe Biden might think of that. He's he's not a fan of nuclear proliferation, is he? No, uh, and it was it's something that Labour seemed 
comfortably keen to pick up on and criticize, which again, felt slightly strange to me because it's it sort of painted the government in a light that I think they're probably not unhappy to be seen in, which again is Boris Johnson's, you know, ready to press the red button. And, you know, he's got the safety of the country first, those kinds of issues. So I don't think it's uncomfortable territory for the government uh, domestically. But yes, internationally, it's, it is a bit of a difficult sell. Uh, and another point that was interesting was was the stance on China, wasn't it? it where the government tried to toe quite a, a sort of nuanced line, didn't it? So there are conservative backbenchers, aren't there, who would like a much more kind of aggressive approach to China, would like us to be not investing, not doing business with China and, and take a much more sort of combative approach. That's not quite what the government's done, is it? No, and I, uh, Boris Johnson's obviously trying to sort of walk a fairly tight line with some of his very vocal backbenchers um, and also very, you know, sort of very prominent and eminent ones who, who know that, about this kind of thing uh, to show that he is sort of departing from the kind of Cameron era, open arms, cozying up to um, the Chinese government. But on the other hand, still kind of focusing his attention on, the, on, on global Britain and the post-Brexit Britain, which is going to be focused sort of outside the EU. So when we reported a couple of weeks ago that there was going to be this tilt towards the Indo-Pacific region and creating this kind of democratic counterweight of alliance against China in that region. I thought that was very interesting that it's the strategy the government wants to pursue. But then, of course, on the other hand, you've got people like Dominic Raab, who don't want to be able to outlaw trade deals with human rights uh, abusing countries, as found by a, a court. So there's going to be some interesting discussions on that over the next decade, for sure. And Aubrey, apart from the government's strategy about Britain's place in the world, we also saw... The first pictures this week, didn't we, of this new press room where you and I will hopefully be filing in soon to ask our questions. What, what did you make of it? Oh, it was very strange, wasn't it? I mean, I've seen the before pictures of that room. And let's just say, you know, I, I haven't seen many people suggesting that they feel like £2.6 million was well spent or can have been seen to be spent in a way that justifies the, the costs there to the taxpayer. So it's going to be very odd. And I mean, the chairs, look at the chairs for the journalists. They sort of just look like they were pulled out of some old school hall. Yeah, that was my main thought. The chairs don't look very comfortable. Also, a lot, lot of flags, many, many flags. Yes, yes. You know, you've, you've clearly seen the sort of conservative strategy of just put a flag behind a politician at every possible opportunity. They're doing it in the Commons now, aren't they, with the MPs that are tuning in virtually. They've, loads of them have now got the union flags behind them as well. <laughs> Exactly. It's like a sort of sub- subliminal message. Yeah, exactly. We shouldn't leave this week, Aubrey, without talking about the news that we're getting our first by-election in a very long time. Um, the Hartlepool Labour MP, Mike Hill, decided to resign yesterday. He's being investigated after being accused of sexual harassment, which he strongly denies, we should say. The by-election is going to take place on May the 6th, we think. It's a big fight for Labour, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely huge. And I mean, I, I don't know whether I've just been listening to too many Northern Tories, but you do really get the sense that it's going to be an absolute struggle for Labour to hold on to. Obviously, in the last election, they they sort of hung on because the Brexit Party did that thing where they stood in all of the non-Conservative held seats. But that meant that actually it was hard then for the Conservatives to gain some more seats because they split the vote between the Brexit Party and the Tories. So... If Richard Tice, who was then the leader of the Brexit Party, is now the leader of the Reform UK Party, which is this kind of anti-lockdown party, uh, decides to stand again, then that will, you know, make things maybe a little bit easier for Labour. But I think it might also just present the Conservatives with a really good opportunity to 
to prove that they can take more out of the red wall. It's probably the most ideal place for this by-election to be going ahead for them. And it would be devastating for Starmer in a way, wouldn't it? Because his whole project really is about trying to win those places back, isn't he? In fact, some Labour backbenchers complain that he's that's too much what his project is about. And he should be thinking about, you know, other kinds of voters who feel strongly about other things. But it really wouldn't be a vote of confidence if, if Labour lost that seat, would it? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, Amanda Milling, the Conservative chair yesterday, was trying to sort of set some expectation management, wasn't she, about, you know, this would be a very hard fight, but, you know, we're really going to sort of put loads into this. So I think the Conservatives definitely don't want it to be seen as a foregone conclusion. But, you know, one person, one Tory MP I spoke to yesterday was like, this is a challenge for Keir Starmer's leadership. So that's how, at least privately, they will try and sort of up the stakes on Labour here. And it will be so hard for Labour. It's a seat with such history. It voted something like 67, 69% to leave. So very sort of pro-Brexit, even though those arguments are somewhat behind us. Paul Williams, um, an ex-Labour MP in Stockton, is sort of one of those talked about who could be taken, you know, selected to take up the role. And uh, I think yesterday was found to have deleted a tweet about uh, supporting people's vote. Yeah, I was going to say he was very vehemently anti-Brexit, wasn't he, if I remember rightly? Yeah, very. And I was getting sent screenshots of uh, actually like I think Guardian articles that he either wrote or was quoted in about his support for another referendum. So, you know, people are just, I think Northern Tories would be very happy if it does turn out to be him because they feel that he'd be a candidate. They'd be very happy to have their own candidate taking on. So it's an interesting question though, isn't it? How much Brexit is still going to be an issue? Like, My my sense is people are not that keen on talking about it anymore. I wonder to what extent voters will think Brexit has anything to do with a, a contest being held now. I don't know. Maybe, maybe depends how much impact they're seeing in their daily lives. But un- unless you're an exporter, probably, you know, it's, it's not much at this point. The pandemic has kind of taken everything, you know, the pandemic has kind of crushed everything in its wake, hasn't it? And, and maybe Brexit isn't such an issue. We'll see, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, we shouldn't sort of forget the traditional, you know, rules of by-elections, which are, you know, that they are usually difficult for the governing party who gets kicking, that this is, you know, a seat that Labour's held since it was created, that, uh, you know, it was formerly represented by Peter Mandelson. And when he stood down, there was speculation that it might fall away from Labour then, but it didn't. So we shouldn't get too sort of carried away with just this sort of single last election result. And like you say, Brexit has, to a large extent, kind of fallen away as an issue. And Boris Johnson kind of I think said this, not this time last year, about 13 months ago, that he never wanted to say the B word again. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how much the Conservatives decide that actually that is something they'll pick up on and run with. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be very interesting. One to watch in what's already stacking up to be a very busy May in uh, UK politics. Aubrey Allegretti, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. After the break, we look at why the EU and the UK aren't quite breaking up amicably. And we ask where Gavin Williamson is. We'll be right back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Today is St. Patrick's Day. And to mark the occasion, US President Joe Biden is having a virtual gathering with the TSOC Michael Martin, hoping to smooth over the UK and EU's relationship after the breach of the Northern Ireland Protocols or legal action launched on Monday. The UK has hit back at the European Commission, insisting that they're still being lawful, whilst delaying the grace period to relax procedures for checks on goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland until October. The European Commission has stated that this is the second time the UK has breached international law, threatening peace in Northern Ireland. Messy trade talks and the continuation of challenges on the border highlight what my colleague Polly Toynbee points out is not just a slow puncture, but a big bang, with exports to the EU from the UK down an extraordinary 40% in January. So what is the current state of Brexit talks and what does the next few months look like? My colleague Peter Walker spoke to Professor Anand Menon, the director of the UK in a Changing Europe, which is based at King's College London, to catch up on what's happening with Brexit and where it's heading. Anand, thank you very, very much for joining us on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. So we've had the first kind of, I guess, hard stats on how post-transition Brexit might actually be affecting the UK. There were these ONS figures showing that exports to the EU have plunged by 40%. Can, can we read a lot into that or is it just too early given Christmas, stockpiling, COVID, etc., etc.? I mean, there's an awful lot we can read into it. The problem is we're not quite sure whether what we read into it is true. Because as you said, there are so many variables here. There are firms that did stockpiling in December in advance of this, who therefore are trading less, but that will be something that comes back. There's the COVID impact that we're not entirely certain about yet, because whilst freight levels may have returned to pre-pandemic levels, what we know is that a lot of lorries are moving one way or the other on their journey empty because of the checks. So it's far too soon to say with any degree of certainty how much of this effect is Brexit, though we can be pretty sure that some of it is, and we'll get a better idea over the months to come how much of it is. And I guess one thing we can be reasonably certain about is that ministers would like to present Brexit as being this kind of largely finished thing. So, you know, it was notable in the budget. Rishi Sunak didn't mention Brexit once. I mean, do you think that there will be an attempt to, at least in the kind of short to medium term, try to portray any impacts on, you know, exports and things like that as as much to do with COVID as anything else until, you know, maybe the public hopefully loses interest in it as far as the government's concerned? Oh, I'm sure there will be. Uh, I'm sure, and the government's doing it already, that they'll say that this is down to the pandemic and nothing to do with Brexit, whereas actually, at best, we don't know. So they're making claims that aren't necessarily fully grounded in the uh, evidence. But the other thing I'd say is the government is already managing this in a quite an interesting way. So the recent sort of story that I think The Guardian ran about the fact that the government is going to uh, delay imposing checks on imports into the UK. That's interesting, isn't it? Because what it means is even though it actually hurts our exporters relative to EU exporters, that's to say, if you're exporting to the United Kingdom, you can come through without being checked, whereas our exporters are facing a barrage of checks. So there's a sort of imbalance there. What it does is it prevents the kinds of shortages in shops that some people warn might be a consequence of Brexit. Because, of course, if our border is effectively open, 
those goods are going to keep rolling through and British consumers, British voters, in other words, won't notice much or if anything in the way of a difference. But I guess amid all that, the political discourse has been perhaps more kind of testy than a lot of people would have thought. Lord Frost, David Frost, who was the chief Brexit negotiator, who's now installed in the uh, cabinet office as a kind of minister for Brexit. Um, he had quite an interesting Sunday newspaper article a week or so ago, saying that the EU should, quote, shake off any remaining, remaining ill will towards Britain for Brexit. And he seems to be trying to present it as Britain, you know, surging onwards and the EU still still being kind of trapped in the past. How, how well or badly do you think this is going to go down in Brussels and the other countries? It obviously won't go down very well at all amongst the member states or in the European Union, but I don't think they were the intended audiences of the Frost op-ed piece, to be honest. I think he's appealing to Conservative voters. He's trying to keep that Leave coalition that Boris Johnson assembled back at the election in December 2019 together. And in a sense, the British government is getting its retaliation in first. It is saying, look, insofar as there are going to be issues, the issues are there because the EU is simply being stubborn. And more than stubborn, it's just being a bit stroppy because it didn't like Brexit and they're trying to punish us. Of course, the EU's line on this is completely different. What EU leaders will say is, we're applying our law. And that's what the EU does. It applies the letter of the law. And unfortunately, the letter of the law means... You can't export mollusks from certain waters. There are going to be problems getting into Northern Ireland. But I think the more the British government tries to turn this into the fact that the EU are behaving unreasonably, the more they might benefit from it politically. And I think that's the key aim of David Frost there. But do you think that can continue into the longer term? So, for example, we've got this news that the EU is set to take legal action against the UK over its unilateral moves to change the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. Is is there a worry that, you know, if the United Kingdom's um, reputation is damaged internationally, that that could at some point start to have an impact on voters within the UK? I mean, will the two things ever connect? It is possible that that's the case, yes. I wasn't aware of any great impact on public opinion of, for instance, the internal market bill and the rhetoric surrounding that. So I'm not convinced, to be perfectly honest. I think an alternative question, which is potentially sort of more important, is whether there is a solution to the standoff over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Because if there isn't, then we end up in a situation where the protocol proves to be unworkable and we're back to talking about borders on the island of Ireland. Whether that has an impact, it will certainly have an impact on public opinion in Northern Ireland and in the Republic. But that, for me, is the bigger question. Given the fact the EU is taking the UK government to court, it's quite hard to see how the EU can back down from this position and say, oh, we've decided to be flexible after all. And the one thing we've seen from the British government is an absolute refusal of any kind of flexibility. So that's the problem there, is how we make the protocol work. And it's far from clear how we do it. And there's, I guess, even more complicating factors. You have the vaccines row. So we had last week Dominic Raab. Um, summoned the EU's ambassador to the UK over this allegation that um, the UK had banned vaccine exports, which which the government seemed to take in quite a personal way. Do you think this kind of stuff over vaccine nationalism, if you can call it that, and particularly the kind of differing success rates in terms of vaccine rollouts between the UK and um, EU countries, do you think that has the potential to harm relations anymore? Or is this just very much a kind of COVID particular thing? I think relations are going to remain rocky for 
reasons unrelated to this, to be honest. I mean, I think two things about the vaccine. I think there's been serial incompetence from the European Union, both in the episode over the potential triggering of Article 16 of the protocol and over these recent comments. The EU has played this terribly badly. And there's one thing we know about the British government. If it sees an opportunity, it will grasp it. So it'll go on and on and on about what the EU has said and done. Given where we are now, you'd expect the UK economy to rebound significantly more quickly than continental economies, particularly because you see in countries like Italy, new lockdowns being imposed at the moment. So that will have an impact, I think, in terms of perceptions of the United Kingdom. If our economy is growing quickly far earlier than theirs are, that will have an impact. But in terms of relations between us and the European Union, I think the reasons they'll remain rocky has got nothing to do with this. I think they'll remain rocky because... Brexit is a good issue for the Conservative coalition, and the occasional spat with the EU is good politics for Boris Johnson. And on the EU side, they have no interest in doing us any favours because we're now a competitor on their doorstep. So I think that kind of low-level tension is something we're just going to have to factor in from now on. And I guess it's one of the things that some people will see continued tensions and problems with Brexit as being a kind of Conservative government problem. But as you say, if you have a government which, particularly in relations to Europe, is almost in a permanent campaign mode with this kind of sense of grievance, then in an uh, electoral sense, that's actually a good thing, isn't it? For the Conservatives at the moment, yes. I mean, what we don't know. I mean, for me, one of the big battles of politics is going to be the battle over the terrain where politics is fought out. For the government, which essentially was elected on the back of creating a values coalition. Issues like Brexit hold that coalition together, whereas on questions of economics, and we see that in Parliament all the time now, the Conservative Party and Conservative MPs are deeply divided between traditional uh, Conservatives, low-tax, small-state Conservatives, and those from the Northern Research Group who are talking about maintaining the universal credit uplift, about state investment, borrowing for infrastructure. So, in a sense, values are more comfortable terrain for the Conservatives than economics. The inverse is true for the Labour Party. So what I think we're going to see as we come out of the pandemic is Labour desperately trying to make sure that the political battleground is over the economy and the future of the economy and who pays for the deficit and so on, rather than about values. And that will be a key battle, I think, between the two parties, the terrain on which we are fighting. And from that point of view, there's quite a big incentive then for Labour to not discuss Brexit all that much. So in political terms, in terms of like domestic UK politics, we could just have Brexit kind of rumbling along in the background for a reasonable number of years without people paying too much attention to it. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one about Labour. You can see why they're reluctant to talk about Brexit. I mean, there are two good reasons why you're reluctant to talk about Brexit if you're Keir Starmer. Firstly, it's the Hampstead versus Hull division that we all spoke about so much, which is that the Labour Party is divided on Brexit. Secondly, if Labour spokespeople come out and say, we want a closer relationship with the European Union than the one the government has, they face the question, how will you do that without, for instance, signing up to freedom of movement? So it's, it's, it's tricky terrain for them. That being said, if it is the case, and I think most economists suspect it will be the case, that we recover from the pandemic fairly quickly, but that the impact of Brexit will continue into the medium to long term, by the time we approach the next election, if Labour wants to point the figure to slightly anemic growth in the United Kingdom, they have to link that to Brexit. So Labour need to develop a story about how the kind of Brexit this government has delivered is going to have medium to long term negative impacts on the economy. And they failed to deliver that, to, to develop that narrative to date.
Anand Menon, thank you very much. Thank you. Peter Walker speaking to Anand Menon there. Last week, kids in England finally went back to school. Teachers, staff and students were a mixture of excitement and nerves, but the first week appeared to go smoothly. The new Children's Commissioner for England, Dame Rachel D'Souza, has launched an independent childhood commission to gauge how the pandemic has disrupted not only their education, but their future livelihoods too. She said she was inspired by the 1942 Beverage Report, which shaped the post-war welfare state. Due to the effects that Covid has had on children, she argues that it's a once-in-a-generation chance to put children's needs at the heart of policy. Is a commission enough to keep struggling kids afloat? And what are the current strategies the government's thinking of to solve such a complex situation? On Tuesday, my colleague Peter Walker spoke to The Guardian's education editor Richard Adams and former Education Secretary for England Justin Greening to find out more. Richard, so to go to you first, schools in England are now pretty much back. Uh, This was kind of quite a big moment in the COVID roadmap. How does it seem to be going in the broadest terms? I think it's gone pretty smoothly from what I can tell. Uh, There are isolated reports of year groups having been sent home because of a couple of positive tests, but that's what we would expect, I think, in the in the circumstances. And there are some figures out today from the DfE uh, about attendance the last couple of days to show that primary school attendance is basically back to normal. Secondary school attendance seems to be a few percentage points down from where it normally would be. So that suggests there is still either some schools are having to stagger the return of their pupils because of testing or cases where there have been positive tests and have had to send pupils home. But in general, you know, you'd think these would be the kind of teething problems that would take place with such a big logistical exercise. Uh, Justine, this was something that kind of Downing Street not only really, really wanted to get right, but I guess it needed to get it right. Absolutely. I think um, there, alongside what Richard said, there'll be a lot of parents breathing a sigh of relief that they can, at least if they're working from home, get a bit more peace and quiet. And I think there's probably a renewed respect for what teachers have to do every day um, in order to educate our children. And and of course, I think for number 10, they absolutely had to make sure, as far as they were able to, that schools could get back, A, as soon as possible, and B, in a way that was coordinated and, and seems to have been professionally done. And of course, I think teachers and head teachers in particular have been thinking about this moment for a very long time and therefore were well prepared when it finally arrived. And it's great to see, you know, young people back in school. And it, it does, as Richard says, does seem that it's gone relatively smoothly. And I think the focus now is on how you deal with A, the gap that COVID has opened up on education because of the school shutdown, and B, the rest of the gap that was already there before we even went into COVID and was one of the reasons why the government was so focused on levelling up. That's the big challenge now. So I guess that's the thing. That was almost the easy bit. But Richard, this didn't necessarily even feel like a particularly easy bit. There's been a certain amount of confusion before the English pupils went fully back about things like testing and masks and things like that. Has that worked out more or less okay or is it still a bit early? Uh, well, it seems to be all the head teachers I've spoken to, which is a relatively small number, to be honest, but from what I can tell, there's been almost no uh, complaints or, or issues about wearing masks so far. There was some concern before schools went back that there'd be some resistance by parents. There was talk about parents keeping their children at home uh, because they were worried about safety. And that seems not to have been the case. Or if it has been the case, it's, a, it's very small numbers. Now, the novelty of these things may wear off, and if we see a repeat of the, the sort of large numbers, 
uh, in some cases in some parts of the country that we saw uh, last year being sent home, then then that could change. But it, it, the mood at the moment seems to be that it is safe to send your children to school uh, and there hasn't been much in the way of difficulty. I guess that's the big thing, isn't it? I mean, Justine, to go back to you on this, we've had schools, I mean, for the most part, beyond a few months in autumn, closed for the best part of a year. Is it possible to kind of firstly quantify how potentially damaging that is for children's life chances and, you know, things like that? And then also, in the broadest sense, what can be done about it? Well, I think the new Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, today, she quantified something like 840 million missed school days, which is a huge amount. And I think the the challenge is the government's talked about Build Back Better, how you now bring that alive for our education system. And I think if COVID has underlined a lot, it's underlined, if you like, the, the inequalities on education that were already there, but also the fact that Part of those gaps that open up are driven by what happens outside of schools as well as what happens inside schools. And and these very different home learning environments that young people have that mean some have great facilities and quiet places where they can study and revise and get prepared, for example, for exams and others just don't. And what it's underlined is that we need to we need to tackle all of that. In other words, it's around not just, if you like, the knowledge and skills that young people are being taught in school. It's around the experiences that they get alongside their formal academic education, whether that's developing them in the right way to be able to take opportunities, you know, on problem solving, creativity, working in teams, all of that. I also, though, think it's underlined the fact that we need to make sure there's the mentoring in place so that young people are getting the right kind of advice. And if they don't have those family connections, for example, to be able to get um, internships, et cetera, organized or advice on careers, that can't be allowed to hold people back from making the most of their talent as they come to steadily leave the education system. So there's a huge amount to be done. And I think what it all adds up to is a rebalancing of the education system to not just focus on academic attainment, which is effectively what it is largely focused on right now, but to confront what all the teachers know anyway, which is it's these other parts of developing young people that really counts when they are going to be successful in their future lives. And we can't just ignore that. I mean, Richard, is it fair to say that so far the specific policy ideas emanating from the government have been more on a kind of micro level. It's been things like, you know, do we move to having shorter school breaks, having a five-term year, things like that. Um, has anything else come out? And am I right in thinking that Ofsted were not particularly sure about the idea of a five-term year? Right. Well, yes, there have been some things being talked about, such as, you know, summer holiday boot camps and and various other things. I mean, some of those are, you know, just reshuffling the timetable in a way. There's two things. Gavin Williamson has has hinted at more radical changes, but without giving any any great detail about what they might be. Uh, And the other is that what's happened in the past year is going to affect different groups very differently. I mean, obviously, those from different socio-economic backgrounds are going to be differently affected, as we as we've just discussed. The other big difference is age, of course, and that's something that's going to take a while for us to figure out. For a child that's in year one at the moment, they have another twelve years in full-time schooling, so the possibilities for them to catch up can be spread over twelve years, and uh, that will be fine. Although there's some issues about for very young children missing out the very basic building blocks of literacy and maths could take longer to to fix. 
but essentially they're going to be in the system for a long time. The kids I worry about are the ones who are in year nine now or year 10. Uh, they only have three or four years left in the system, so there's a shorter time for them to catch up. And it may not be possible, given the, the sorts of uh, solutions the government's talked about, which are, are perfectly sensible themselves, you know, small tutor groups aimed at mainly at disadvantaged children or uh, those children that schools have decided have been worst affected. I mean, those, that's fine in itself, but it's going to take us a while to figure out how much that they need and, and whether that will indeed be enough. I suspect it won't be, but it'll take us a while to figure that out. And the trouble is these kids don't have that much time. And I guess other year groups which are very much at the kind of sharp end of this are the 16 and 18 year olds who making who were meant to be taking uh, exams in uh, uh, June. This year, GCSE and A-level exams are not going to take place. Justine, I mean, it was a bit chaotic last year. Um, would you have wanted to be in charge of education with all the fuss about exams last year? It sounds like there was no easy choices. No, it was extremely hard for anyone who was going to be Secretary of State last year. But I think broadly it was inevitable, really, once the, the latest lockdown happened, that you were going to get that bigger shift on not having formal GCSE exams this year. And I think, I mean, just to build on what Richard was saying, yes, there are challenges, but I also think there are some solutions that have come out of COVID as well. I mean, we've developed online learning and understood, if you like, how to teach remotely in a way that we never would have done without COVID. That is something that we can use going forward to be one of those ways that we close the gaps. We're going to end up with a national tutoring um, scheme that, again, could be part of a long-term fixture on how we make sure there's more tailored support for young people, perhaps from less privileged backgrounds. So I feel that actually if you do this particular catch-up on COVID the right way with the right building blocks, they can become the building blocks of a longer-term approach on levelling up and closing the gaps that can be there. And the reality is also, I think, as part of this, for those children that have less time left, as Richard said, it's quite right to point out they haven't got the time to necessarily catch up. It also means that we shouldn't forget the role that colleges and also universities can and need to play potentially in helping them catch up as they move into that part of the system. And I think there's been a lot less discussion about that. And I think there needs to be a lot more focus, if you like, on how we're going to make sure that those parts of our education system can play that role effectively for those young people if they're not going to be in the conventional school system for long enough to be able to get that time caught up. Mm, oh, I see. And Richard, we've mentioned Gavin Williamson a couple of times. He's not the most visible of cabinet ministers currently. He's had, it's fair to say, quite a tricky time. The um, opinion polls are not that great for him. The teaching unions have been very slightly rude. Do you think he's kind of stabilised things a bit? I did see one poll that showed him to be less popular than COVID-19, which I thought was interesting. But I don't know. I mean, things have stabilised a bit. Or, or I mean, there's a sense that he will move to something else. Uh, in the next reshuffle. So I, I, there is a sort of suspicion that uh, he isn't long for the job, but uh, obviously I don't know anything about things like that. I don't know. I mean, things have, they've ended up trying so many things, the DfE, and some of them worked and some of them haven't. And it, it's a bit like the government as a whole in the way it deals with COVID. People don't blame them for some of the things that happened because it's a difficult position and there are no easy answers. But we've had the situation with exams this year, for example, where they could have foreseen something was going to happen and, and come up with a, 
some better ideas or better plan Bs, but instead there was nothing. Mm, no, I guess that's very true. Uh, Justin, it'd be very, very unfair for me to ask you the same question. So I'll ask you a slightly different version. You've obviously done the same job as Gavin Williamson. In some ways, it always strikes me as the as the cabinet post that people take in a most kind of personal sense because it you know affects their lives. Is it a job where you're you know constantly aware you face criticism and flack? Is it, is it quite quite a tricky one? I actually think any cabinet roles are tricky. You know, I think the challenge for Gavin Williamson or whoever's in that role now is to be able to stand back and see this bigger picture of, you know, the more fundamental challenges our education system has in terms of not being able to drive levelling up as much as it should and could. And he needs to then work with the education profession to effectively create a common vision of how you do that and start working collectively on it and there's a big opportunity now. I do think, you know, there are some moments, and this is definitely one of them, when I think people have a sense that we need to refashion things and not just go back to how they were before. I don't I, I think Britain is an unfair country. I don't want it to go back to the version that we had before COVID. I want us to use this as a moment to say we can do a lot better. That's what people were voting for on levelling up. I think Boris Johnson understood that and that's why he's been so successful politically. Well, that's all fantastic stuff. Uh, Justin Greening and Richard Adams, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Next week, we'll be running a special edition of Politics Weekly, focusing on the anniversary of Boris Johnson announcing the first lockdown in England. What was it like to be in Westminster that week? Make sure to join us for that. And in Politics Weekly Extra on Friday, Jessica Glenzer steps in for Jonathan Friedland and chats to the co-author of a new book about Medicare for All, about why the concept of providing healthcare coverage for all Americans is so politically vexing. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Aubrey Allegretti, Peter Walker, Richard Adams, Anon Menon and Justine Greening. The producer is Amy Leibovitz. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks as always for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we bring the world together. Our aircraft connects communities, facilitating cross-cultural communication. Our satellite technology enables communication across the world and allows us to explore space, expanding human knowledge to create a better future on Earth. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at Airbus.com.